Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ciao e benvenuto al Ruler Podcast numero 62, circa il Giro d'Italia. Hello and welcome to the Ruler Podcast. I'm Ian Parkinson and this is a special Giro-themed edition. If early spring is the time that cycling fans turn their thoughts to Belgium and northern France, by the beginning of May we are all, like Dave Stoller, in breaking away a little bit Italian. Later on we're going to be joined by a very special guest and also here is the Ruler editor Ian Cleverly. Ian, what's in uh, edition 62? What are the highlights? Oh, what are the highlights? Um... Mario Cipollini, for starters. It's a fabulous uh, interview with Cipollini and some great pictures. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good good excuse just to sort of rifle through the archives and get some get some classic Chippo stuff out. Marco's done a great job on it, Marco Pastanesi. Um, I think he's somebody that um, Cipollini kind of trusted to do a good job with it and so therefore told him stuff that I certainly hadn't heard about before. There's all the sort of uh, backstories of his fancy costumes and his uh, and his special kit as well, wasn't there? Yeah, but it's, it's almost the thing is that's all that stuff is so crazy that it almost you almost forget what a prolific winner he was, and he was a phenomenal sprinter uh, for an, an, you know an inordinately long time. Yeah, he was still winning, you know, into his mid thirties and beyond, which was just. Uh, pretty mind-blowing yeah. and you always got the sense with him that actually he knew exactly what he was doing in terms of his image there was a, a sense that he set out to create that image and he knew exactly how valuable that was totally and, and he would he would he would milk it and to to the nth degree and get fined I mean just how hilarious is that it's like you've got a kind of you know superstar rider just like giving you great publicity and then you give them a fine for not wearing the regulation stuff or for turning if, up yeah yeah or, as, as if he gave a flying hoot you know okay. right, really. i had the uh, luck to meet uh, cipollini at the um uh, at the ruler classic and i said at the end of it uh, you know uh, we miss you in cycling i think we do yeah i mean i guess uh, as uh, as as museo said on the last podcast you know uh, I won't do an impersonation of Johann's voice. Um, but, you know, he loves Sagan because he's rock and roll. And, yeah, Cipollini's the same Cipollini deal. was definitely you know, rock and roll. He's a showman. One of the things about the Giro is that it uh, they do throw in some eccentric stages just to keep the uh, crowds amused and just to keep the publicity going, don't they? Some absolutely insane stuff. I mean, we've got... Paul Maund has done a lovely piece on some of the craziest stages over the years. Uh, and that's followed by... Paolo Chaberta's photo essay on the Finestra, which is which is uh, you know a, a party 
beyond belief up a goat track. Um, but some of the stuff they've done previously includes uh, going across the Grand Canal in Venice on a specially built pontoon bridge and finishing in San Marco Square. That is imagination. That is awesome. And keep listening because that will be uh, part of our ruler competition later on in this podcast. Um, so probably time for our special guest. Just as our classics edition featured the line of Flanders' Johan Museo for this edition, we're joined by a winner of the Giro d'Italia and much more, of course, including the Tour de France and the World Championship in the same memorable year. It could only be, well, Phil Liggett probably summed it up best in 1987. And just who is that rider coming up behind? Because that looks like Roach. That looks like Stephen Roach. It's Stephen Roach. He's come over the line. He almost caught Pedro Delgado. I don't believe it. It looks like Roach. <laughs> it is Stephen Roach. How many times uh, a week do people say that to you? It's actually amazing that, um, you know, that, uh, that commentary from, from Phil Liggett, uh, how it stands out in everyone's mind when they think about the stage. Uh, of Tour de France up to, to La Plania and you know people will first of all say oh Stephen remember that great stage where you collapsed and Liggett's words you know and uh, here we go again do you mind that? Uh, not at all like you know I always ask myself the, same, the question the other way around you know saying if nobody ever mentioned it would I be happy so the fact that people mention it it's obviously marked in people's minds and uh, like 30 years almost 30 years on now uh, we're still talking about it and whether it's because of Liggett's words were so great whether well, it was because my, uh, my achievement was great, I don't know. But both together, it was a great achievement, yeah. I think part of it, looking back, especially if you were a cycling fan in the UK, was that it was so rare to see cycling on television. And then, you know, that was in the early stages of um, Channel 4 uh, broadcasting every evening. So it, it was a huge event. And it was one of the things that, that you know, cycling fans talked about the next day and for, for days afterwards. Yeah, I think it was also the fact that, um, like... Uh, the Tour de France and the big tours were all um, the, the, they were all owned by uh, the Belgians, the French uh, and Italians and the Spanish. And all of a sudden we have, uh, OK, we had uh, Tom Simpson and Barry Hobbins and we had the Chaliots and everything else before. And then all of a sudden here we have, um, OK, we had Graeme Jones, Paul Sherwin getting some good results. And all of a sudden then we have myself, Sean Kelly, Robert Miller um, actually doing really, really well. So it was a big turnaround, I think, and um, uh, people started looking to the Tour de France a little bit more, and uh, people then really realised how how important and how, how monumental the Tour de France and the big tours were, and uh, to have someone of from 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 our own side of the water uh, doing so well, it um, created even more interest and maybe open the doors to other people to say, well, maybe you know, maybe we can do it, you know. You had a long, successful career as a professional bike rider. Um, but probably most people will remember you for that summer of 1987, uh, the Tour, the World Championships, and, of course, one of the most controversial Giros of, uh, of history. Um, uh, looking back, what are your memories of um, the 1987 Giro? Well, I saw the Pope at the end of it all, and he, you know, he kind of gave me a full pardon. You know, but I uh, <laughs> got a private audience with the Pope, and uh, he gave me a full pardon, you know, but I don't know what he'd give me a pardon for, because I might have been, uh, did nothing wrong, you know. <laughs> But there's a couple of hundred thousand Italians out there think that I did attack Vicentini, you know. Whereas, you know, this, you know, let's put the record straight. I didn't actually attack him. I just went down a hill faster than him and he couldn't follow me. So, you know, it wasn't really attacking, you know. I would never attack a teammate, you know. Uh, when you look at it, I was just being a, an ideal, um, exemplary uh, teammate. Like we were leading the, the, the Tour of Italy with Vicentini. 
Uh, there was three guys in front, no Carrera guy in front. So I just thought, well, yeah, you know, if I get in the front, it means my team haven't got to ride towards the end. The Bianchis will ride for Argentine, the Panasonics for, for Brooking. So ideal situation. And, you know, looking at it on the other side, it could have been a bit suicidal as well because the fact that I finished up the final hill up, up, up to, 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 to Zapata, if I had actually uh, blown my brains, I could have lost everything. Whereas, in fact, you know, I, I prepared to gamble. And uh, what really kind of sparked the whole thing off was when my team car came up and told me that Vicentini was riding behind me. But that was the, 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 the error, not me riding in the front. It was Vicentini Your riding. own team, the Carrera team, were actually chasing you, yeah. weren't they? They were trying to uh, chase you down. Yeah. So, and then when I said, like, tell the guy to stop. I mean, it's, uh, let, let them wait for a few minutes. There's the Bianchis and everybody else, they'll ride. And the answer was, no, 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 uh, Roberto's riding behind, riding, riding, riding. I said, well, you know, he can't ride behind me, you know. So he said, well, you know, you better stop. So uh, I said, well, you just tell Roberto if he keeps riding to keep something under the pedal because when he catches me, uh, he's going to need it because I'm going to go again. I think it's fair to say that even now, I think Roberto Vicentini doesn't see things that way, does he? Yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, surprisingly, I met him in 1988 on the, the Giro or something afterwards and there was no real, didn't feel really any animosity. But uh, in 2013, we had a, Carrera had a, a reunion with all the team and uh, some journalists and um, a journalist said to me, Stephen, I haven't seen Roberto. Is he, was he invited? I was yeah, I think he was. Oh, let's call him. So he called Roberto and he had to hold a phone about a metre away from his ear. <laughs> I could hear Roberto shouting into the room, yes, after what those guys did to me, how can they invite me? How can they expect me to come, you know? I said, oh gosh, you know, 25 years on, he's still crying about it. But um, okay, they're having another one now next year for 30 years on. And they want to have, they want to have um, all the riders and all the staff back together again. And uh, we'll just see if uh, Roberto shows up. So to be continued. Looking forward to that. Watch this space. <laughs> we often talk about the passion of the Italian fans, you know, the passion of the Tifosi. You saw the sort of dark side of that, really, in, especially in the couple of days after that stage to Zapata, didn't you? Yes, but it's still a passion, you know, because they were so passionate about the whole thing and so... Um, um, patriotic, like they, one of their own had been hurt and um, there was no consoling them. Um, like even like David Boifava, the team manager who lived in Brescia, who was a personal friend of Vicentini, um, the following day he was on a hill driving up the car with the bikes in the car and uh, because of the crowds and the roads, the car stalled and some guy took the bike off the car and said, hey David, you want the bike? Come and get it. Kept going. You know, even one of their own, you know. But they were very passionate about it. And um, I think the passion they have kind of is one of the real reasons why they, 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 they changed towards me a little bit. I won't say they, they accepted what happened, but they tolerated it and they made excuses for it. And it's okay, well, you know, oh, Stefan won the Giro uh, in these circumstances, but he also went on then to win the Tour and Vicentini wouldn't have won the Tour. So that kind of put it a, bit, a little bit into perspective. And made him tolerate a little bit more what had happened. But um, I think it's, um, like, what I love about the Italians is, and even when they talk bad about it, it's the passion that comes out in it. And uh, you can always joke about it. Did you actually feel in fear of your safety at any point during those, those days? Uh, definitely, and I wasn't the only one. I mean, everybody feared for my safety because they, uh, they had my... Masseur was making my food for me because they were afraid of somebody trying to poison me. My mechanic was exclusively given my bike to, to take care of because they were afraid of somebody sabotaging my, my bike. 
you know, I, I basically, I was uh, in seclusion for, for nearly 10 days. I couldn't eat with my teammates because they were afraid of me. Someone, you know, hitting me going down to the, the corridor of the hotel or something. So um, it was a very, very lo- lonely life for, um, for the final 10 days of the tour. Well, not the final 10 days. The second and last day, things got better. When they finally realized that Vicentini probably wasn't going to win the tour, all of a sudden I kind of recovered my teammates because they automatically thought, well, okay, well, gee, if Stephen wins here and he decides not to share this, the, 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 uh, the prize money, what are we going to do? So there was uh, one very, very last uh, difficult day before the time trial, and all of a sudden I, I found uh, most of my teammates on, on that day. And you had um, some defenders riding with you. You had Eddie Shepherds, you had uh, Robert Miller, Phil Anderson, people like that who were you know, uh, riding with you and to some extent protecting you. Well, like um, Eddie Shippers was my teammate and he was riding with me all the time. And then, of course, uh, Miller uh, was there riding for Panasonic, but um, riding for a place on the podium also. But uh, Robert was more or less um, a bit disgusted with the, the reaction of the Italian public and the journalists, the media. It wasn't say he wrote to help me, but he, he, he was using a, I was using him as a shield because um, on some of the climbs, like I had Eddie on the right and Robert on the, on the left, or vice versa. And they were uh, making sure the the crowds stayed a certain distance. So um, by doing that, so it did, did help me a lot, yeah. You won the Tour de France, you won the Giro, you won the World Championships all in one year. With the way that cycling has become more specialised now, do you see that happening again? Do you see a rider capable of doing that again? Oh gosh, no, it's too hard. No, um, <laughs> definitely it's possible to do it again, yeah. Definitely it's possible. You know, um, I just don't shout about it because it's nice to be the only guy with Eddie Merckx to have won a triple, you know, in the same year. But um, it's definitely possible. But the... The problem is that even if kind of the strongest riders wins the Giro, wins the Tour, if you get a dead flat uh, World Championships and the guy isn't a sprinter, it's going to be very complicated for him to win. And I find myself that in latter years, the, the World Championships hasn't really been a great uh, all-rounder circuit. It's been all more or less for a sprinter or a guy that rides well in the sprint. So where the World Championships that I won was a fairly hard one. So it was, I wouldn't say it was easy, but it was easier for a Tour rider or Tour winner to be able to be performant in the in the world championships, but it's definitely doable again. Definitely yes, but um, the one of the main problems is the the pressure on the riders to to go out and do a Giro. You got to do so many kind of miles and training and kind of training camps before it. Then you got to go into the tour, and um, like you're we are riding at 100 percent every day, where today the riders are riding 110 percent, and uh, th- that you pay someday. And also one other thing is also the World Championships are a month later nearly. So whereas when I did it, it was kind of, it was bump, 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 done. Negative Giro, the tour, then you got to wait two months nearly before getting the, to the World Championships. So it's very complicated to kind of hold form or lose form and get it back again. But um, you have to kind of compete between the, the tour and the world to stay in condition. And um, so it makes it more difficult having the different, uh, more having more time between the two events to to, to, get a, to get a win. Who's your tip for the Giro this year? Well, let's see who, who rides it. First of all, I think, um, you know, uh, Nibali is riding it, but, um, you know, Nibali it will be, of course, the, uh, the, the favourite. But, um, you know, because Nibali, he, he, he's, he's, he's an Italian, he's a bit of a moaner. And he's, uh, he, even though he won his tour, he's won a Giro, he's won a Vuelta, he's, a, he's got an incredible uh, list of wins behind him. But um, he lets he navigates quite well, and the, going to the Giro this year with some of the big hitters concentrating on the tour, 
He's my favourite. You're off now uh, to give some advice to riders um, who are taking part in the London Cycle Sportive, which takes place at the end of June this year. Um, finishes actually here at Hernhill Velodrome, where we're speaking. Did you know that uh, Fausto Coppi rode here in 1958 and in 1959 as well? Actually. No, I didn't actually. Uh, didn't I was only born in '59 as well. So, but nevertheless, you know, it's uh, like I've always heard about Hernhill. Like even though living in Dublin in my upcoming years and getting into cycling. I mean, Heron Hill is a monument in cycling. And, um, you know, I think for the sportive uh, cyclists uh, finishing here in June in the, on the event, you know, uh, it's definitely going to be, you know, an incredible feeling if they can look into the history of Heron Hill, you know, and um, the old history, the Olympics, uh, Kopi, uh, Wiggins. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, it's like uh, going in and playing in Man United or your, your, your favourite football team's uh, pitch. You know, here we are going to arrive in here into, into Heron Hill where all these kind of legends have gone before, you know, and closed for you. And also there's a possibility of even having a, a chip and getting your time on it, you know, and doing a personal best. So uh, just don't compare it to Wiggins or, <laughs> or, uh, or Copy. Or Copy yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for being our guest. Before you go, um, can we just ask you to have a look through um, the Giro uh, edition and see if you can pick out a picture that you particularly like the look of? Certainly. Well, one thing, like we're now in 2016, and you look at the photographs here of the Campagnolo uh, equipment, and you kind of say, you know, it looks, you know, quite ridiculous, uh, ridiculously beautiful at the time. Um, but um, at the time was also uh, the way to go, drilling out your brake levers, drilling out your rear mag, drilling out your chain rings, uh, dipping a drill into the brakes to take a little bit of aluminium out of it, you know. And uh, when you see the equipment we have today, we're just no drilling, and it's much, 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 much lighter than... Uh, much more costly as well, of course, but much more lighter than those things, you know. And like this is like uh, something you think, you know, that your grandfather would have done maybe, but in actual fact, we did it ourselves. Did so, you actually do that? Because it always yeah. struck me as a, as a very sort of English time-trialling thing to do, but, but you I actually did it as well. Far, I wasn't far, far, very far away in Dublin, you know. <laughs> so, um, but, and of course, our... Um, the, the, the habits we got, we got it from a lot of from the UK, you know, kind of, I always remember my, my dad comparing like, like Beryl Burton's uh, bike and everything else. And I mean, we, 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 we did, you know, we'd no, we'd no real information what was going on in the rest of Europe when I was coming up in Ireland, but we had a lot of uh, information what was going on in the UK. So we would have co probably copied or followed the, the fashion here in the UK. But, um, and it was definitely a time trialing thing, yes, but then it became a mountain climbers thing as well. Then it became, well, yeah, well, why can't we use it all the time? And uh, when you had a, a camp bike group set or a whatever group that we had, um, uh, and there was some fabulous, looked really, really fabulous when it was drilled out, where sometimes it looked a bit bulky when it was normal. But um, definitely when you see the the uh, the different, that, 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 the groups that there are, it's probably, probably around 1980, 75, I suppose, late 70s, I say, you know, but which isn't that far away, really, yeah. When you see the way it's come on today, and you did it yourself, you actually. I, I did it all myself. I had a, I was a maintenance fitter, so I worked in a in a in a, in a dairy in a in a machine shop, and uh, I used to drill out wherever I could. And sometimes a bit risky by times, I suppose. Looking back at it now, at the time it didn't seem dangerous, but um, uh, looking back at it now, you say, well, it wasn't. Look at it, nothing snapped. You know, <laughs> the bike got lighter, okay, but <laughs> could have all gone wrong as well. You know. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it didn't. Uh, Stephen Roach, a pleasure to have you on the Ruler Podcast. Thank, Thank you very much. much. Thank you. Thanks again to our special guest, Stephen Roach. All that remains, I think, Ian, is for the uh, competition. And last time, uh, there was a Flanders-themed question in Podcast 61.
There was. Uh, and the question at the time, <laughs> at the time, I stress, was there have been two British winners of the Tour of Flanders, one man and one woman. Name them. It has, uh, of course, uh, since then changed because uh, Lizzie Armistead did the business. But at the time, the winners were Tom Simpson, of course, and uh, Nicole Cook. And the competition was won by Peter Ginman, who gets um, a lovely print of Simon Scarsbrook's illustration from issue 61 um, of the Flanders 100. So congratulations to uh, Peter Ginman. Um, Our Giro-themed question uh, for this edition is, in what year did the Giro cross the Grand Canal on a temporary bridge and then finish in San Marco Square? In what year did the Giro cross the Grand Canal on the temporary bridge and finish in San Marco Square? And the appropriate prizes are a Marco Pantani mug by Richard Mitchelson and a Dimarchi cap. So go to the Ruler website, uh, click on the podcast page. The question and details of how to enter are there. That's it from this Giro-themed edition. Thanks to our guest Stephen Roche. Thanks to Ian Cleverley. Thanks for listening. Join us next time. Until then, be careful out there.